This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project. Hello, my name is Alex Conway and I'm a Global Europe researcher at the Institute of International and European Affairs, the IIEA, here in Dublin. And I'm delighted to be hosting an interview today as part of the IIEA's Global Europe project, supported by the Department of Foreign Affairs. This project explores Ireland's role in Europe and Europe's place in the world. Today's discussion will look at how Irish foreign policy has changed and evolved since joining the European Union in 1973. I'm delighted to be joined today by three former practitioners who are all steeped in Irish foreign policy and have kindly agreed to share their insights, reflections and thoughts with us today. Mary Whelan, former Irish ambassador to the Netherlands, Austria and to the United Nations in Geneva. John Neary, former Irish ambassador to the Netherlands and Japan. And Noel Fahey, former Irish ambassador to Germany and the United States. And my first question to set the stage is to ask what were Ireland's main foreign policy objectives before joining the European Union in 1973? I, I actually joined the department the year of our accession. Um, so I'm, I'm not sure if I'm a good person to talk about what it was before, but I can tell you what it felt like on the year mm. that, that we joined. Um, and I joined um, in October 1973, and we had very soon thereafter the Sunningdale Agreement. And I would think that the big item at that time, there were, there were a number of big items, but I think the two big items were accession and what was happening in Northern Ireland, which is very hard for people today to understand what was happening in Northern Ireland. Um, the murder and mayhem um, and complete collapse of the, of the system there. And then the incredible uh, achievement at the time that Sunningdale was. So I would think that there were three pillars to our foreign policy then. Um, there was Northern Ireland um, and the relationship with Britain, which had been the ongoing and still is the, the consistent um, theme in our, in our foreign policy. The second was accession to the EU and what that meant for us. But my sense at the time as a very, very junior person was that that was seen more as an economic policy, as the future prosperity of the state, rather than as affecting or impacting on our foreign policy. I mean, there was an awareness of that, of course, but, but it wasn't central. And the third big issue was, of course, um, uh, uh, the UN and multilateralism. And that, uh, again, that, that has con con continued on, those three elements. But could I just say one final word before um, giving back the floor? Uh, the world at that time was a very different world from the world we have today. Uh, you had the Warsaw Pact, you had the NATO countries, you had China still in the, in the depths of the Cultural Revolution. Um, you had still uh, African countries emerging from independence. You had uh, an EEC that consisted after our accession of nine member states. Um, it was such a different world and our representation overseas reflected partly that and partly our poverty. Uh, I agree completely with a point Mary has made. I think it's a very important point. Uh, just to, to uh, this is on the economic importance of joining the European uh, communities as they then were. I worked in foreign affairs briefly in 1970 more by accident than by design, I got the third secretary, but I really wanted to go to finance. But when I was in finance, I worked for three and a half years in the EEC section. So I, in some ways, I might as well have been in foreign affairs with daily contact. And I came back to foreign affairs at the beginning of 74. But I would agree completely with Mary's point about the economic 
interest of joining the uh, uh, European communities. I look back last night on the 1972 white paper, which was the basis on which the government fought the referendum. And that is very strongly economic based. There is an important chapter on the political and foreign policy implications, but 95% of the document, and it's a, it's a good document. I, I had a hand in two chapters of it. It's a good document and it does represent very accurately what the mood was at the time. Now, just to work back slightly from that, joining the European communities had been an objective of Irish foreign policy from the end of the 50s onwards. And it was gradually, but it was there largely, I, I'm afraid, because we didn't want to be left outside the EEC when Britain joined. And the Anglo-centered uh, uh, aspect of our foreign policy, which goes right back to independence, was still there, was still very much in it. Despite the, uh, the, uh, the development of our involvement in the Council of Europe on the one hand, and most importantly, our involvement in the UN, uh, our foreign policy was still very much driven by a view of how things were seen in London. And if we had if we had priorities, the UK came first, the US came a distant second, the Vatican for a long time until the mid fifties came third and the rest of the world really wasn't, didn't intrude all that much, no matter how much we might have said so, and certainly not in terms of broad public debate. So uh, just to sum up, I agree with Mary. I think that the economic expectations were paramount it was only afterwards that we really began to discover the other implications and what we had been drawn into. I'm not saying that the officials and even the politicians wouldn't have been aware of it, but as far as public opinion was concerned, it was an economic thing. John, would you like to say anything? Yes, I, I would agree with both Mary and with Noel. Um, we didn't, after the Second World War, we didn't um, join uh, with we didn't join the European coal and steel community, we didn't join the European economic community, and we didn't join EFTA when it was established as a sort of a, a, an alternative to the EEC um, because we were pursuing a, a sort of a protectionist um, policy, economic policy. But after La Masse became Taoiseach in 1959, uh, we changed completely and embraced the idea of European unification, and we wanted to be part of that. And we were convinced, I think, that our, the prospects for economic development were better inside the European economic community than outside it. So I think our motivation in joining was very largely economic. Um, but at the same time, we recognized that there was a political dimension to the EEC. It was only really just beginning uh, when we began our negotiations in 1970 um, but we did in the 1970 white paper, uh, in advance of opening the negotiations, we did say that we recognized that as the political objectives of the European economic community developed, then those involved, the states involved, would have to be prepared to contribute to those objectives. And, and we were obviously ready for that challenge. So. We weren't, um, we weren't ignorant of a political dimension to the communities, but at that stage it was quite ill-defined. And so we were much more focused on the economic opportunities that we saw 
uh, that membership would bring us. Okay, I think that sets the scene quite well for the moment of accession and how we joined in. And I think that brings me on to the second question about how EU accession changed Ireland's approach to foreign policy. And I think something Noel said there about that Anglo-centred approach since independence. And I'm wondering if that was the guiding sort of principle or sort of the most important critical aspect for Irish foreign policy from independence to accession. Did it change at accession? Did the focus of the UK become less important, more important? Did we start looking at more other different distinct par partners? I don't know if uh, Noel, I'll jump back to you on that. Yeah, I don't want to, I just want to uh, underestimate the importance of the relationship with the UK, continuing importance of it right through the last 50 years. I mean, our conversation in advance of this discussion would show that on this day, but uh, I, I think it did, membership did provoke the beginnings of a rethink and a move away from being totally Anglo-centred. I think that came very early on, as early as 1975, when the Labour government uh, wanted to renegotiate the terms of membership and the issue of Britain leaving the EEC was a real issue. And while it never actually came down to a, a debate in government, there certainly was a feeling in foreign affairs that even if the British left, we should stay. Now, it never came down to a discussion because I don't think, for instance, the Department of Finance would have been quite so enthusiastic. And I seem to remember there were mutterings about the Gaullists in Ivy House, but the British voted to stay in, so it didn't become an issue then and remained and didn't become an issue for, for nearly 50 years, uh, as we know. So uh, I, I think that membership has made us to, to a fair extent less Anglo-centered, but we still are very Anglo-centered and there's no point in pretending that membership has somehow converted us away from our interest in Britain. And that's understandable. Our economic interest in Britain is still hugely important. Um, on a more, on a broader note, I think there, there, is a, there is a paragraph in the white paper, which I think says a lot about the expectations from membership in the foreign policy area and what it's produced. It's talking about, in the political chapter, it's talking about the, uh, the uh, effect, what, what membership will bring us in foreign policy. And it admits that our influence will be fairly small but then, and I'll quote, it says, we must contrast this with our present position as a very small country, independent, but with little or no capacity to influence friends, events abroad that significantly affects us. One of the major problems facing small countries such as Ireland is how to exercise their national sovereignty as fully as possible in today's highly complex and independent world. And it goes on to conclude that however modest EU membership will increase our influence, both in terms of our relations with the other member states and in the broader uh, context. And I do think that has been borne out. I, I think we do, over the last 50 years, we have had a, a, you know, a greater role, modestly, mainly through the EU, than we might otherwise have had, than we would otherwise have had as a, as a, a non-member. Perfect. Thanks for that. I could say that sentence might have been written today or, you know, this year. So it's quite ready. Mary, do you want to come in on that? 
Yeah, I mean, I, in, when I was when I was thinking about this um, topic, I was thinking that in a sense, it was our membership. It has been our membership of the uh, EC and then the European Union that has most profoundly affected our foreign policy and not because uh, of what the union is, but what because of what we have become. When we joined, we were a relatively poor country. We had relatively limited trade links. Uh, we didn't need a network of embassies. You know, it, that's just the reality of what it was. Um, we didn't, in, in Latin America, we had one embassy and that was in Buenos Aires. And it wasn't until the 1990s that we had a second one and that was Mexico. Yeah. That, <laughs> our representation in Asia was minuscule. Um, and in Europe, of course, uh, in, in, in Eastern Europe, we didn't really know Eastern Europe. It was beginning to open up and it was considered exotic to go there on your holidays. And then it was likely to be Yugoslavia you went to, a state that no longer exists. But as we became a more prosperous country, our interests and our knowledge of other countries um, increased. And suddenly, uh, not suddenly, it took a very long time, we began to develop relationships, our politicians, our business people, our young people, our officials began to develop relationships in other parts of the world. So when you come, when you fast forward to, for example, the war in Iraq, that had a huge impact in Ireland because we had the whole beef tribunal that came out of the collapse of the Goodman Empire. You know, our engagement with the world changed. Um, when I came back from uh, a very junior post in Washington in 1976, um, I was uh, a first secretary in political division. There were six first secretaries. My responsibilities included Latin America, Africa, Asia and the UN. And that lasted for five months. Now, our first presidency of the EU was coming up. And, you know, I think there might have been the job might have been divided in two. But, you know, that reflected where we had interests. We, we didn't have them in, in, in many parts of the world. So I think that the biggest influence has been, well, twofold really of the EU. One has been, it has given us prosperity to have greater contacts and it has changed us as a people because it opened up what was a very closed um, monolithic type culture in Ireland. And that, um, there were so many issues, like we had a, um, and we still have this sense and UN fora uh, of anti-colonialism, and that comes from our history. We had a sense that human rights were a good thing, but it didn't really percolate down through, through our policy. And I think today, as we had changed as a people, our interest in human rights has become much more sophisticated. <laughs> as we have become more prosperous, we have also, and very early on, recognized the need for a, an Irish development aid program overseas. And that has become a huge part of the department. Again, a different type of engagement with the rest of the world. And that all came about because of the greater prosperity and openness which the EU brought to us. So I think that the impact of EU membership has been very, very profound, but not so much in how we vote on this or how we vote on the other at the UN, but because it has changed us as a people and as a political entity. When, uh, when we decided to apply for membership of the communities, I think we saw our economic fortunes as very closely linked to those of Britain. And so if Britain joined, then we felt that we had to, to join too. Um, but by the time we did join in 1973, 
the, um, the conflict in Northern Ireland was deepening, which was becoming extremely violent, extremely difficult. And I think relations with, with the UK were becoming a little bit difficult as well. And one of the great benefits of membership of the uh, European communities was that we found that we could find other areas where we could work very well with the British in, in the European context. And while we didn't always agree with them on every subject, or sometimes we didn't agree with them for the same reasons, nevertheless, I think um, it was certainly my experience that it was, it was very easy to get on with British diplomats in EU meetings and to understand um, where they were coming from and what they were aiming at. And uh, I, think, um, I think that was probably voted by many other people. And so I think the membership was extremely helpful to our relationship with the EU overall. But, but as Noel said, I think we have um, grown over the years and it was very interesting that when Britain decided to leave the European Union, um, there was never any question that Ireland would follow suit. And we made a, a very clear and conscious decision to commit ourselves to, to our European future. And there has been no significant um, opposition to that from, from people within the country. Um, I think the membership obviously had a huge impact on the Department of Foreign Affairs. I joined at the beginning of 1975 and I was sent to the political division, which was managing our first presidency of the European communities. Um, and in those days, the presidency was very different to what it is now. Um, there were only nine countries, of course, at that stage, and there were far fewer working groups and there were far fewer ministerial formations. But at the same time, the presidency was responsible for everything. There was no council secretariat was no support from Brussels. So the presidency had to organize all the meetings, they had to chair them, they had to provide the administrative support, and they had to produce all the documents. And so it was a huge undertaking for um, a very small foreign service such as ourselves. We were small in terms of scope, we were also small in terms of numbers. And um, there was a huge expansion of the department in terms of numbers around the time of our, or shortly after we joined. But uh, many of those people were only just uh, entering, as I did, at the time of our first presidency. So there was a huge learning curve. Um, but there was also a great spirit and a great commitment. And uh, it was a very exciting time to work in foreign affairs because there was a sense that we were, um, we were you know, crossing new frontiers and entering new fields and, and learning new things. And um, everybody worked very well together. Sorry, Noel, you wanted to jump in there. Yes, I just want to add a footnote to John's final point about uh, involvement and demands of membership. Uh, I, during that particular presidency in 75, I was on the economic side and we dealt a lot with the home departments. And it's just as a footnote to our discussion so far, we shouldn't forget the huge impact that membership has had on the home civil service. It's pulled it out of, a, of the parochialism here, got it involved in, not just in Brussels, but in lots of other areas where the EU is involved and where people have to travel and get involved in discussions and negotiations throughout the world. It's had a profound impact on the Irish civil service uh, beyond just the Department of Foreign Affairs. And while 
it took a long time, I think, to persuade people that phoning Whitehall was the way to find the, the answer. I think over the last generation, certainly from the 1990s onwards, there has been a tendency to look just beyond what they think in Whitehall to what other member states think. And I think that's a hugely important legacy of, uh, of the early experience and of overall membership over the last 50 years that we shouldn't forget about. Can say that's a it's a nice uh, segue to the, the next question I have, which reflects just on something you said there about getting the impressions of other member states, as well as what uh, Mary said about Eastern Europe and these member states that we maybe didn't know. But I think enlargement is one of the most powerful instruments of foreign policy that the EU has. You know, welcoming new members into the club and integrating them, and Ireland is one of the first beneficiaries of that enlargement. So I think maybe I'll jump to yourself there first, Mary, about the. Sort of what were the implications of that redrawing of the map of Europe? You mentioned, you know, a world where we had the Warsaw Pact in 73. Now we have an EU that stretches up to the Russian border. So I think you can see there's been a quite a profound transformation of how we consider what's foreign, what's domestic, and maybe what's European is in between. I mean, each successive enlargement have brought new issues in, but also it's not just the question of enlargement, it's also the question of the deepening of the union itself and uh, how the union has taken greater competences and what it has had to do in order to achieve that. When I said, for example, uh, we had no, we really had no Latin American policy. Well, did, the EU didn't have much of a one or the EEC either, because that really began to happen after Spain and Portugal acceded to the, to the union in the, after us. Um, and each successive uh, union expansion has brought in new issues. Um, and I think we have responded well to that. Um, uh, we've also, and again, it comes back to the, the fact that the EU opened our minds in so many ways. We have been less negative and maybe less defensive than other large EU member states have been at different stages of the enlargement process, including and up to today. We have tended to take the position, certainly our politicians have, um, that enlargement doesn't diminish us. It enhances um, the entity to which we belong. So we have never been found wanting when it comes to enlargement. And I don't think that is just an issue of saying, well, you know, uh, we don't want to pull up the drawbridge. I think it's because we understand um, that uh, enlargement has increased uh, our prosperity and hopefully it has increased our security also. Um, but there could be questions around that. Um, so um, I think it's been positive. I, you can, I think you can see in our attitude to the Balkans and our attitude to the Ukraine that that will be continue to, to be the way. With, for, for me at the moment, I think the most interesting thing would be um, the way, and we have been talking about an Anglo-centric world, the way that world, which is the world that that we swam in without even knowing we were swimming in it, that that world is really um, um, moving past us or we're moving past it. Um, and I say that in the context where we mightn't like to notice this as, as Irish people, but I think John referred to the fact, and it's true, that at EU coordination, uh, they were often the delegation, the UK delegation, whose logic and, and uh, expressions were most familiar to us because probably our schooling was influenced by their, their education system too. Um, and now we are, that's, 
we're gone past that. It's, it's into a different world. In some ways, I see our EU membership as we started off, probably not even started off, but maybe by the 1980s, 1990s, we were seen as part of the Club Med group. Now we're sort of moved north and now we're part of the Nordic, Hanseatic, whatever you're having yourself uh, group. Um, and now I think we are beginning to move away from the Anglo-centric world and we're beginning to forge um, relationships um, with others. We are still have that uh, economic interest, which is more Northern European, um, for want of a better geographical term. But I was very struck. I was just looking at what our ministers were doing, what issues they were dealing with this week. Well, we know that the, the Taoiseach was, was in um, Ukraine. Uh, but, but I also noticed that we had a minister of state who was, let me just check, he was on a visit to Kosovo, North Macedonia and Albania with his Finnish counterpart. I noticed that the Minister for Foreign Affairs um, was co-authoring an article in the Observer and the Guardian with his German counterpart. Um, and Ireland at the moment also has the presidency of the Council of Europe. So we are, uh, you know, without even being conscious of it, we are moving into that different world. And the only way, since we don't have natural allies in it, is to really find allies as topics come up, to be open to other people's concerns. Um, and I think we are. I think I'll uh, pass it over to you, John, as you were uh, name checked there. Just to um, to pick up on a point that Mary uh, talked about, about the Europe, Europeanization of Irish foreign policy, I think it's a very important point. Um, when we joined the EEC in 1973, we already had a, a set of, if you like, policy priorities that we had developed at the United Nations. And they were essentially about um, solidarity with emerging nations, um, sort of a desire for a greater economic balance between the global north and the global south, um, a, uh, you know, a, a very strong opposition to nuclear weapons and a concern about uh, increasing levels of armaments throughout the world. And, and finally, a very strong commitment to the United Nations as the uh, the place for, or as the body for, for, for guaranteeing international peace and security. And we, we carried those policies into the mem our membership of the EU. And I think we have, we have managed to succeed in defending those policies throughout our membership. Um, but enlargement has, has changed the, uh, the European Union um, in many ways. Um, I was involved in the Nice Treaty negotiations, which were essentially to prepare the Union for the uh, membership of the Eastern European countries that would take place in 2004. And although I wasn't conscious of it at the time, looking back on those negotiations, I think there was a general assumption that um, the new members would join the Union as it then was and would become part of what was the then economic or European Union. Whereas in fact, of course, the fact that 10 new members joined meant that the Union itself had to change. And I think that we are still to some extent uh, grappling with the consequences of that. So I think when we think about enlargement and talk about it, we have to consider not just the number of member states, but also what impact they're going to have and what sort of union we want uh, to result from the 
um, the, new, the, the joining of these new member states. Perfect, no. Um, I agree with Mary, <coughs> the point Mary makes about alliances, and I think we have wisely not nailed ourselves into any particular group, but over the years have worked with like-minded in areas that are of interest to us. I think that's a positive thing. I mean, you often hear demands for alliances for the sake of alliances, but alliances have to have substance, and we've been careful there. I, I would make a point about the intensity of our involvement with the EU over the 50 years. I think the, the other pole of our foreign policy as it affects domestic policy, the North, as always meant we've had to have a close relationship with London. And I have to say in the late 90s and into the noughties and during the Celtic Tiger period, you would be told say in Berlin that the Germans detected a, a decline in interest in Europe generally and a strengthening in the relationship with the UK. And, you know, I think that there's, there was some truth in that. So, you know, our relationship hasn't always been fully intense. It, it has varied a bit. Um, that, that's the only point I, I, I wouldn't add to what Mary has said and what John has said about enlargement. I think they've, what they've said encapsulates it all. And if I could just mention one thing, not now, but before we finish, I would like to say something about one aspect of what we expected from membership and what we got, uh, which I think is a, a useful footnote, but I'll leave it for the moment. No, perfect. I mean, it'd be great to come back to it. And I think the sort of final question I have before we wrap up is something that John mentioned there about the prospect of a kind of, as the union got broader, it also changed fundamentally and it got deeper and it changed through those enlargements. So I'm trying to, so I'm wondering if we go to John first about that idea of, we've looked back over 50 years of membership and how that has changed both Ireland and the EU and how they've changed each other. And I'm wondering if we were looking forward, what kind of trends do you see emerging of a sort of a deeper union and maybe what that means for Ireland and for the, for the EU? Well, I have more questions than answers, I'm afraid, on this topic, because I think it's very hard to foresee the future development of the European Union at this stage. Um, we're now talking about accession for, um, for Ukraine, um, for Moldova, uh, the, the Balkan states that have been candidates for, for many years are, are still uh, hoping for membership. Um, as I said, given the experience of the accessions of 2004, um, I do wonder what impact the accession of the, those other states would have on the European Union and to what extent we could continue, if, if you like, a fairly uniform um, set of policies across the Union. So I think we have to start asking questions such as, do we want to uh, reduce the level of political integration in order to in increase the level of economic integration? Um, should we be looking at options such as associate membership of the union that would perhaps give some of the benefits but not all of the decision-making capabilities? Um, I think uh, that th th those are the, the sorts of things we have to start looking at. Um, for, for the future. Um, we also need to look at what's happening in the wider world. 
um, globalization, which has been such a benefit to Ireland, has come under uh, threat in recent years. And um, we saw during the, the pandemic, and we've also seen during the Ukraine war, how uh, global supply chains can be impacted by international events. So I think we and the European Union need to think about uh, the security of supply chains and that might involve looking at uh, bringing back some production of essential uh, goods and services to Europe that are currently outsourced really to third countries. And the final point I'd make is that I've been very struck by the fact that when the UN General Assembly voted on the, uh, the Ukraine war, um, over a hundred states did not support the Western position. And many of those are in Africa. And I think we need to you know, ask ourselves how the European Union is perceived outside of Europe and whether we are communicating to countries in Africa and countries in Asia and in Latin America um, the right messages or the messages that we want them to understand. So I think um, we, we can't simply rest on our laurels. We have to keep thinking about how we are perceived and, and regarded outside by outside countries. Perfect, thank you. Uh, Mary, do you want to jump in? Um, I, I think that um, the first thing in, in answering your question is, again, to look at the environment. Uh, was the first thing to look at when you looked at Irish foreign policy pre-accession. It's the first thing one has to look at today. And um, it's, it's just a truism. We're always in a very complex changing environment, except this time, it is really the case. Um, we uh, are very committed to as a country and as, as a, a union, a mm -hmm. rules-based multilateral system. Well, quite frankly, it's very hard to see that system surviving um, at the moment for all sorts of reasons, um, but most graphically by the, the fact that a permanent member of the Security Council has now, without provocation, invaded um, and seeking to destroy the sovereignty of another state. Um, and I think that that would suggest there is going to be um, the realization of this will eventually percolate through the structures of the international system. And there will be a very different world in which we have to uh, operate. We as a union, we as a country. And I think that that world is probably going to be something more like a balance of power system. It'd be more, it'll look more like the 19th century than it did the end of the, of the 20th, I think. Um, and in that context, the EU has to change. Um, now, I, I know there is a discussion about associate membership and so on of the EU, but I, I wonder, can we really go that way? Again, if you look at, uh, at what happened with our concerns about Northern Ireland, I'm sure there were times when people in Estonia or people in Croatia or people in Warsaw said, why did we have to become experts on the Good Friday Agreement? Well, that's just the price you pay. And we're going to have to become experts on all sorts of things we don't even know about yet. Um, so I do think that the change will be more in the security field because it is a much more insecure world. And because we still need um, some uh, strongly regional or globalized or people who speak for us at the global level um, to help strengthen uh, cooperation. And that could be anything from food security uh, to climate change, to um, human and animal health security. Um, 
So I, I, that's, to my mind, would suggest that the EU is going to have a, a stronger um, security role. It's going to have to have a stronger political role on the world stage. I think to achieve that, it's going to have to change the way it conducts itself internationally. What John said is perfectly true. And the EU, anyone who, who has worked at the UN knows the EU, for some reason, is not at all popular. And it's very hard for us who are within in the EU to understand that there is resentment to us. Part of it is because it's very easy to stigmatize a bureaucracy, and that's what Europe looks like from outside. So I do think um, that Europe needs to come to grips with this fact that it isn't regarded as the white helmet of good guys all the time. And one final point I would say for the future, not just for Ireland, I think that the UK is very important for the security, defence and prosperity of Europe. And it's not just for us, but I think that Europe has to, and I don't think Europe will be found wanting in this. I think Europe has to invest um, into bringing the EU as far as it can be brought uh, into a cooperative, um, uh, non-reactive um, react type relationship in the next few years. Grant, and then uh, Noel, if you want to respond to that and um, your concluding remarks you wanted to bring up as well. Yeah, uh, I, I, Mary's final point was a point I was going to make, uh, and I was going to make it in a different context. Uh, Macron has recently talked about some sort of relationship, which might, new relationship, which might be created, which would involve the UK more in what we used to call political cooperation. Uh, that has implications, I think, for another aspect of uh, EU policy that's always given us some pain and discomfort. That's the idea of variable geometry of member states going in particular ways. We probably will need to be a lot more alert to that, but we have, a, we have a, an interest in an arrangement with the UK which doesn't dilute European integration, but then we have an interest in a as close as possible a relationship with the UK for political and economic reasons. And that will be an interesting conundrum. I can't add to the, the points that Mary and John have made about the challenges. I think they've covered them all. Uh, I don't know whether you want to stop me there or come in later on the final point I want to make, which is not particularly relevant to what we've just been discussing. No, I see that's a perfect segue because I'm going to ask if you have any um, final comments or anything I've missed or anything you'd like to add. So, no, we'll go to yourself first. Yeah, one thing about uh, looking back now to 1970 to 1973 and even to the 1960s is uh, over the last half century is the unexpected happened too. And I think one of the most significant unexpected consequences was the equality agenda. I mean, when I was looking through the white paper last night for the more uh, high level uh, concept of where we would go on policy, I noticed the bare and uh, rather grudging two paragraphs on equal pay. But the equal pay provision in the original Treaty of Rome has been a platform in which a lot of change has been, uh, legislative change has come about here. And in the early years, not willingly, I remember in 1975, there was a very bitter controversy between the government of the day and the commission about the implementation of our obligations on equal pay. 
The government wanted to defer the, uh, the phasing in of equal pay, and the Commission opposed this and insisted that we stick to the, uh, the timetable. And of course, in the centre of all that was the then Commissioner responsible for the issue and the Commission, uh, Dr Hillary, and the Commission prevailed. And it was an early reminder to the Irish government that the terms of governance and trade had changed and decisions had to take into account what was done in Brussels. In itself, the equality issue, the equality platform that membership provided has delivered change. I mean, change which was coming anyway, but it's helped to supplement that change. I'm sure there are other areas, but that was one that occurred to me last night when I was looking back on the white paper. Brilliant. Thanks, Emily. And I'll go to John and then I'll give the final word to Mary. Um, in preparing for this interview, I came across a paper written by Paddy McKernan, who was my first councillor in the department and who went on to be political director and later secretary general of the department. And he gave this paper to the Royal Irish Academy in 1981. And he was writing about Ireland and European political cooperation. But he began the paper by setting the international scene as he saw it uh, at that time. And it, I was very struck by the parallels with today. He was writing about how the policy of detente, which had promised so much in the 1970s, was beginning to give way to a new arms race and increasing tensions between the US and the Soviet Union. Um, there was the Soviet invasion of, of Afghanistan in 1979 that also contributed to tensions. And, and you had a global economic recession that would um, plunge Ireland into a terrible recession for 10 years. So um, he was sort of cautioning about the international situation at that time. And yet within 10 years, the Soviet, Soviet Union had disappeared. Um, our own Celtic Tiger was just beginning to, to grow. Our prosperity was beginning to grow. And so the world was, was changing uh, in many ways. So I think it, it, it sort of, for me, it um, highlights the, uh, the importance of being very careful about predicting the future or even trying to predict the future because things can change so quickly and so dramatically in such a short time that uh, I think we just have to deal with what we have in front of us at the moment um, and hope that we are not ready to deal with whatever comes but that we have the, the tools and the, um, the sort of if you like values-based approach that will enable us to deal with whatever comes in the future. Perfect, and then Mary. Um, well, I have no idea what the future will hold, thank goodness. Um, but I do think that uh, whatever it will be, it, it will be a European future. And that's because I don't think it's an optional relationship. Um, this is where we're situated. Um, as Britain has found, it cannot cut itself adrift and wander off somewhere into the North Atlantic. Um, and uh, the best um, outcome could be that we can broaden our zone of prosperity um, enlarge so that uh, we, uh, we share that prosperity with others um, and deepen so that we can uh, deal with the challenges of those who have different values and a different world vision than we have. Uh, much as John Dunn said, no man is an island entire of itself. We're all part of the continent. And on that note, I want to thank Mary, John and Noel for their time and for an excellent and enlightening discussion there today. 
And if you'd like to learn more about the work of the IIA, please do check out our website at iia.com and our social media. This interview series is brought to you by the IIEA as part of our Global Europe project. 